Well, we've gathered together tonight to remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and I want to focus our thoughts around the victorious forgiveness that we find in Christ Jesus at the cross as taught and illustrated by the, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians. So, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2, verse 13. Colossians 2, verse 13. And let me say just a few words of background about this letter that Paul wrote. The church in Colossae wasn't planted by the Apostle Paul. It was planted by a man named Epaphras. And several years after it was founded, there was a heresy that threatened to destroy the church. Um, uh, the elements of this heresy uh, weren't identified with any particular philosophy or other historical religion, but the elements came to be associated with what was later Gnosticism. And in the case of Colossae, false teachers were portraying Christ as merely one of many manifestations of God that were emanating from God, but not partaking in the divine nature. So, the Colossian heresy didn't deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it denied the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, and it denied, in a way, His humanity. And so, Epaphras became so concerned about this false teaching, he made a 1,300-mile trip to Rome just to go and consult with the Apostle Paul about what to do. And Paul was at Rome in that time, uh, in uh, that particular moment, because he was under house arrest in Rome. And so, Epaphras made the journey, he consulted with Paul, and Paul wrote this letter that we now read to the Colossians. And Paul wrote the letter to combat the error uh, that they faced and to assure them of the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. Now, if you're familiar at all with Paul's letters, you know that he routinely contrasts the circumstances of our lives without Christ with the new life we have in Christ. And in Christ, we've passed from spiritual death into spiritual life. The work of Christ on the cross is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. It's sufficient to free us from the enslaving power of sin, and it's also sufficient to protect us from false teachers who make false claims and offer counterfeit gospels. All the believer needs is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this particular paragraph we're going to look at in Colossians, Paul uses three pictures to illustrate the forgiveness that we've received through Jesus. Follow along with me while I read Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul says, "'When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh,' He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. In Greek, the words that begin verse 13 actually uh, begin this way, and you, and that word and is a connecting word, so we probably should back up and look at verse 12 for context. In verse 12, Paul is basically saying that all who are united with Christ have been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through faith. Uh, that's the idea of verse 12. It's union with Christ through our faith with Him. Because you're united with Christ through faith, whatever happened to Christ in the past 
has also happened to you. So when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he rose, you rose again with him. And the Greek verbs in verse 12 are actually very expressive. Literally translated, they say that we were co-buried, co-raised, and co-made alive with Christ. Because God raised His Son from the dead, we have eternal life. That's the context as you move into verse 13. God raised Jesus from the dead, and He's made you alive together with Christ. But now in verse 13, Paul says, when you were dead in your transgressions. So, the idea moving from these two verses is that the resurrecting salvation of God came to you, but it came to you when you were dead in your transgressions. Though you were physically alive, you were spiritually dead. Before salvation, you were totally devoid of spiritual life. Now, in the New Testament, to be spiritually dead, it means that you are unable to respond to spiritual stimuli just like a physically dead person is unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. The spiritually dead have no ability to make themselves spiritually alive, but God takes the initiative and exerts His life-giving power to awaken and unite us to His Son. Now, you would think that describing spiritual death uh, and describing us as spiritually dead would be enough to make Paul's point, but then Paul says something that perfectly describes us at Grace Fellowship, even though this Uh, letter was written to the Colossian church. And what I mean by that is the majority of us here, I I think probably all of us here, we're Gentiles. Like, we're we're not Jewish people. We're a predominantly Gentile congregation. And Paul points that out about the Colossians. Uh, Not only were they dead in their transgressions, they were also dead in the uncircumcision of their flesh. What does that mean? Well, Paul in Ephesians 2 verses 11 and 12 explains the predicament of spiritually dead Gentiles in this way. He says, "'Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world.'" Since the time of Abraham, God's chosen people, Israel, has had a special relationship with God. They've had His revelation and His law in their own language so that they can read His law, not only to know how to live and how to approach Him and please Him, but also as a moral mirror so that they can see their own moral reflection, see that they fall short of His law, and run to Him for forgiveness and salvation. They have the, uh, the Word of God in their own language. But those of us who are Gentiles, we are outside God's covenant with Israel, and unless the Word of God's been translated into our own language, we would live a life without hope and without God in the world. That's a scary place to be. And when we were separated from Christ, we were hopelessly dead in our transgressions, and we were without hope and without God in the world, and something had to happen that would radically deliver us. And that gets us right back to the reason Paul is writing to the Colossians. He doesn't write to them to offer them some philosophy that will make them more successful in life or to give them an ideology that will uh, help them prove, uh, that will prove useful to them as they try to navigate making decisions. Uh, His goal also isn't to stimulate some kind of self-motivated, self-atoning moralism. No, since the Ephesians were dead, only God could breathe new life into them. 
And that's the way the Bible unashamedly and clearly describes our human condition. Only God can bring transformation. Our efforts at moral self-improvement, encouraged by outward religious ceremonies, will never be able to change the human heart. And so, in the middle of this bleak, sobering reality of our lostness, Paul says that when we were still hopeless, when we were enslaved by the power of our sins, God made us alive together with Him having forgiven us all our transgressions. So, in the middle of our hopeless condition, God made us spiritually alive together with Christ, and He's forgiven us for all our sins. And then moving into verse 14 and 15, what Paul does is he gives us three illustrations of this amazing forgiveness we've received. The first illustration is in verse 14. God has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. The first picture is of a debt that stood against us. I actually prefer the way the ESV translates this verse. It says that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Uh, We break God's law and we incur debt. The illustration then is of an IOU that we could never repay, but God wiped the slate clean. You see, all sinners have a vast debt against God's law. The Jews have a vast debt against God's law because because they have God's law, many of them know God's law, and they still break it. The Gentiles have a vast debt against God's law because even though we may have never actually been exposed to the law that He revealed, uh, we have a God-given conscience, and we have the law of God written in our hearts, that's what Paul says, in Romans chapter 2, and yet we violate what we know to be right again and again and again. And so, all people, Jew and Gentile, stand condemned. The seriousness of this predicament doesn't come home to most people, though. Most people don't walk around, you know, distracted, uh, concerned, troubled by the spiritual debt their sins have gotten them into. And so, when a person begins to awaken to that debt, you know that it's a work of God's grace happening in their heart. Now, back in the first century, they didn't keep ledgers of debt uh, written down in books uh, like we do. Of course, I know nowadays we keep it electronically, uh, but even if you go back a generation or two, uh, they, they didn't have ledgers quite the same way we do. What they did was they used papyrus, and they would write on that papyrus with ink. But here's the catch. The ink they used didn't have acid that bit into the papyrus like our ink bites into our paper. And also, papyrus is more water-resistant than paper. And so, when someone paid off a debt, you could literally take a moist sponge and wipe the papyrus clean, and there wouldn't even be an impression from the ink left on the papyrus. Uh, Perhaps a good illustration in our own day would be the difference between the old chalkboards and a whiteboard, right? When you erase a whiteboard, you might smear the the chalk everywhere and so it's kind of white, but the impression of what was written is gone. Sometimes when you erase a dry erase board, you can still kind of make out the letters. That's not what's going on here. Uh, What God did was He wiped the slate completely clean of all our transgressions because the debt was paid for by Christ on the cross. Shortly before Jesus died, He cried out to Telestai, it is finished. And that points at the same idea Paul is talking about here when he's talking about God wiping the slate clean of our debt. 
when I was in seminary, I had a professor named Dr. Farnell for Greek. I was a first-year Greek student, and so I got in there. I can't remember. It was probably the first or second week of class, and uh, he was taking role, and, but he had given us a reading assignment, and so he wanted us to, uh, when he said our name, he wanted us to acknowledge we were present, but he also wanted to hear the percentage of the reading assignment we had completed to mark it down on the roll sheet. And even though I was a first-year Greek student, I didn't know much Greek. You don't even have to take Greek to know that Jesus said to Telestai, right? It is finished. And so I thought I would be so smart. And when he said my name, I said, instead of saying 100%, I said to Telestai. And he stopped what he was doing and leaned over his podium and said, so, Mr. Krupp, you've completed every assignment for the entire semester and are ready to hand them in. That's what tetelestai means. When the Greeks would use the word tetelestai, they didn't mean the completion of a short-term task uh, in a bigger goal. They didn't mean one step in a larger process. They didn't mean, maybe the best way we could relate it uh, in our own world would be, they didn't mean keeping up with the monthly mortgage payment. Tetelestai means you've made the last payment and you finally own the house free and clear. Uh, that's what tetelestai means. It's been paid in full. And so, when Jesus uttered the words tetelestai on Good Friday, He meant that His atoning work was done, and the debt of sin of all who come to Him for salvation has been paid in full. And that's why God wiped the record of our debt clean. He didn't just let us off the hook. The debt was paid by Christ. And this is a good moment to say that forgiveness isn't free. The grace God offers isn't free in the sense that it cost Christ His life. It's, yes, it's free to us, but Christ had to pay the penalty. He had to pay our debt. Martin Luther said it this way, learn to sing of Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, You are my righteousness. I am Your sin. You became what You were not, that I might become what I am not. In another place, Paul says it this way, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The record of our debt has been expunged because Christ paid our debt on the cross. The second illustration of His victorious forgiveness is also found in verse 14. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's the second illustration. When Romans crucified a criminal, they would write the crimes that that criminal was convicted of and then nail it on the cross uh, with a placard. And so the picture is of you standing at the foot of the cross, and at the top of the cross is a rap sheet of all the crimes you've committed against God, but Jesus is the one paying the penalty on your behalf. He's taking the punishment you deserve. The death sentence you deserve has been removed from your account because Christ bore the punishment for you. In our hymn, It's Well With My Soul, uh, the hymn tries to help us understand this in verse 3 with these lyrics. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The placard which listed your sins was nailed to the cross, but the penalty was borne by Christ. That's the second illustration of His victorious forgiveness. And then the third illustration comes in verse 15. Paul says, 
When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What you have here is the defeat of Satan and demonic powers. Those uh, fallen angels are the rulers and authorities that Paul is referring to in this verse. They're in the spiritual realm. They manipulate the world system. They hate God's chosen people. They hate those who turn to Christ for salvation. But most of all, they hate God and His redeeming plan. But at the cross, Christ defeated their efforts to undermine God's grand story of redemption. And his victory is pictured here by Paul in two ways. First of all, the work of Christ on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, the picture here is not of an army, um, let's say, in Napoleonic times or colonial times or even in our American Civil War. Uh, The picture here is not of a defeated army where the soldiers are stacking their muskets because they've been defeated, or of a general who's presenting his sword to the general that defeated him. That's not the picture. Uh, This is an ancient picture. This is a, a Roman picture. When a Roman general defeated another army, he would take their uh, weapons, their shields, their armor, their helmets. Um, He would take all their articles of war. He would even take most of their clothing. And that leads to the second illustration. He would then take those prisoners of war to Rome, and there would be a parade down the main street of Rome where he would show off uh, all the best uh, examples of the military hardware he had captured but also the best example, you know, the tallest, biggest, strongest warriors, they would be paraded through the street as well. Uh, That's what's going on here. There would be a procession that would show off the spoils of war and make a spectacle of those who were the general's enemy. And the point, beloved, is this. There is a time and place for making this service a very sober reminder of the price of sin. And we actually do that most years on Good Friday as a church family. But Colossians 2.15 would teach us that the cross is a victory to be celebrated. We ought not to think that somehow the cross is the defeat and then the resurrection is the victory. No, no, no. At the cross, Christ defeated sin and death and Satan and demons. That's the victory. You could think of the resurrection then as, uh, as sort of a declaration of that victory, right? Uh, the celebration of that victory. Christ triumphed at the cross, and He dealt uh, the forces of evil a defeat. Satan was cast down. He wasn't annihilated at the cross, but He was decisively defeated. The cross initiated the end game for Satan. So, for the rest of history, Satan plays out his moves, but the outcome isn't in doubt because of what Jesus has done. This defeat of those who opposed the redemptive plan of God was spoken of this way by Jesus at the Last Supper. He told His disciples, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The author of Hebrews uh, makes it even more explicit when he explains it this way. This is Hebrews 2. Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives." At the cross, Christ won a decisive victory over the enemy of our souls and set us free from the fear of death. The terrors of death and hell no longer threaten us because our ultimate victory is secure. 
So when your timid heart finds complete forgiveness of everything evil you've ever done to be an idea that sounds too good to be true, and when your conscience is scandalized by a gospel that claims you can be forgiven of every sin you've ever committed, remember this, God has made you spiritually alive with Christ, and He has raised you from the sepulcher of your sin because Christ took the penalty for your sin in Himself on the cross. There's no double jeopardy in God's plan of redemption or His courtroom. God isn't going to punish Christ for your sin and then turn around later and punish you. Your arrest warrant has been canceled. The record of your debt has been expunged and wiped clean. The rap sheet of your convictions was nailed to the cross where Christ voluntarily, willingly took the fall for them. And now you and I look at our victorious spiritual general who decisively defeated Satan and demons and death and made a spectacle out of them. That's the series of pictures that Paul gives us to help us understand what happened at the cross on Good Friday. These are a series of pictures showing us how completely God in His mercy has destroyed the condemnation that was against us. They are, in short order, a very helpful picture of the victorious forgiveness that we have through Christ. Let's pray.